Hey, it's so good to see you today. Very glad that you're here. We're going to continue uh, in our, our series in the book of Hebrews, turning to chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 1 in chapter 3, and then also verses 12 through 15. If you have a bulletin, uh, you'll see that it, it says 1 through 6 in chapter 3, uh, but we're going to just read verse 1 and then verses 12 through 15. Let me read it for us, and we'll get into it. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verses 12 through 15, take care, brothers, lest there be, any, uh, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, a pilgrim uh, is not just somebody, you know, who came over on the Mayflower and started Thanksgiving. (laughs) Uh, A pilgrim is somebody who's on a spiritual journey uh, and is on their way to a sacred place. So, you know, like a pilgrimage. And today I want you to imagine, because in actuality, you are a pilgrim. You are on a sacred journey, whether you know that or not, and you are headed towards a sacred place, which is the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at two things together today from this passage. It's the pilgrim's problem and the pilgrim's power. So the the first thing, the pilgrim's problem, the pilgrim's problem. Uh, This past July, I flew back to the Midwest to see my parents uh, and also to see my uh, stepsister who was uh, super ill at the time and to see my boys also. And uh, I'm kind of a nervous flyer, kind of intense about it. And so before I go to the airport, I always uh, get on and check the status of the flight before. I, I don't want to get there and find out that it's late and then sit around, right? So I, I wanted to make sure it's on time. So I checked the app and it says, yes, it's on time. So I make my way over to Sky Harbor. I get there at the gate, still says on time. Everything's great. I sit down and I wait. Uh, but about 20 minutes before the flight was supposed to leave, I noticed that the airplane was not there yet. So I nonchalantly go up to the the desk, you know, and I, I try to act really cool so they don't, you know, you don't want to be that guy because you get shut down. And so I go up to the, the desk and I'm like, hey, uh, is the flight on time? And, and she's like, yeah, flight's on time. And I go, where's the airplane? You know, and she said, huh, yeah, where is the airplane? So she gets on and she goes, I feel like I'm in charge over there, right? It's like, she's like checking and she's like, yeah, okay. Uh, good news, the airplane's here, but uh, it's over there across the tarmac, sitting like in a parking lot, and it's July, you guys. It's like 115 that day, for reals. And, and she's like, so someone's going to have to go over there and get it and bring it to the gate, and then they're going to they're gonna have to cool it down. So that's going to take a bit. So not on time, not on time. And so one hour uh, turned to two hours, 
uh, two hours turned to three hours. And then when we got on, they're like, yeah, we, we cooled it off. It's safe to get on the airplane. I promise you this. I am prone to exaggeration. Everyone that knows me thinks I'm ridiculously hyperbolic. But uh, it's over 100 degrees in the airplane. I swear this is true. And it's a full flight. Every seat's taken. We get on. And they're like, hurry up, everyone, because, you know, the air conditioning is obviously not working, can't keep up in this heat. So if we get on, as soon as we get moving, we can turn on the air conditioning. And so we all hurry. We all get in our seats. We all get, and they pull away from uh, the gate. We get about 10 feet out of the gate, and we stop. And we wait in 100 degrees in the airplane for 45 minutes before the captain comes on and says, "Uh, yeah, uh, there's a problem with the plane. We're going to have to pull back up to the gate here and start working on it. We waited and waited and waited. I don't like waiting. I bet you love it, but I don't like it. I'm the weirdo in the room that doesn't like it. Waiting. When I was a kid and I heard about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, I kind of thought they were wandering around because they couldn't figure out how to get to the promised land. Like they were lost, right? If they just had Google Maps, they would get there, but they're just wandering. I thought they wandered lost for 40 years, Uh, but they weren't lost. And in a way, they weren't really wandering. They were waiting. They were waiting on the tarmac of life, (laughs) for real. They were waiting for 40 years for God to test them and to come to an end uh, for God to give them the green light to go into the promised land. But we're going to see today that uh, when it did come time to enter the promised land, that generation of Israel that left Egypt out of slavery, everyone that was 20 years or up was not able to enter the rest, was not able to enter the promised land because of their rebellion and their arguing against God. And so, believe it or not, God is calling us through the book of Hebrews to identify with that group of people, that generation of people that grumbled and argued and complained against God in order to not fall into what they did. He's asking us to identify with the Israelites waiting in the desert because in reality, I want you to see this life is a wilderness. It's a desert. They were in a a literal desert. And so are you, by the way. They lacked water. It wasn't an inhabitable place for cattle or sheep to graze. And so they were waiting in a place that didn't have what they felt like they needed and actually was what they needed, you know, food and water. And they got really mad at God And they got really mad against uh, Moses. And then let's read verses 7 through 11, which is in our chapter, but I didn't read it earlier. It, It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion on the days of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, okay, so this passage that I just read you is from Hebrews chapter 3, but it's actually a quotation uh, from Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 is actually referring to Exodus chapter 17. Okay, you got that? We just read from Hebrews 3, which is an exact quote from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is actually referring back to a historical time in Exodus chapter 17. Now, let me tell you 
how we got to Exodus chapter 17. I know it's a lot, but try to track with me. <laughs> in Exodus 17, we find the people of God, of course, having been released from slavery by the prophet of Moses and by God's power, right? Uh, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt because they forgot about Joseph. They got to Egypt because of a, uh, because of a famine and, and then they got stuck there and, and they forgot about Joseph and the people of God were enslaved there for, for many, many, many generations. So God finally heard their cries for help. He, they raised up Moses as a prophet. God raised up Moses as the prophet who goes to Pharaoh. He grew up in Pharaoh's home and he demands that the people be set free from slavery. And over a long period of time, God was faithful to do so. And he brought plagues on the people of Egypt and upon Egypt as a land. Miraculously, these plagues ultimately leading in their victorious uh, salvation out of slavery. But bringing them out of slavery is one thing. They had to get across the Red Sea into the, towards the promised land. And, and then and we read in Exodus 14 that God literally parted the Red Sea. Miraculously. Can you imagine and they went across. In Exodus 15, so okay, 14, Red Sea. That's kind of a big deal, right? If I saw that, I want to believe I'd never doubt God again, right? I think God's with me if he parts the sea for me to pass through. Then they get over there, though, and there's not a lot of fresh water. It's bitter water. It's, it's un, undrinkable. And so God gives them sweet water. He provides another miracle. Exodus 14, Red Sea. Exodus 15, sweet water. Uh, <laughs> Exodus 16, they grumbled, there's no food, and we can't stand it here. We'd rather be enslaved back in Israel where there was like really good food to eat, like, you know, meat and stuff. So God provides, miraculously, quail and manna from heaven. You know, this, we're not going to waste too much time talking about that. You've probably heard about that. Literally, food came down from heaven to provide for the people. So if you'd experienced all that, I kind of want to believe that we'd be like, all right, God's got us. He's with us. He loves us. He's for us. Exodus 17, they grumbled and complained about the lack of water again. Let's read about it in Exodus 17. But the people thirsted there for water. Of course they did. They're humans. You, you need water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out to, of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Mo Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I going to do with this, these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And maybe you remember from, from the story, the Lord has Moses take his staff and strike a rock, and out of the rock comes water for the people of God. A miracle, another miracle. Verse 7 of Exodus 17, and he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? After all of that, all these experiences, all these miracles, all these things, they're asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? Where are you, God? Can't believe you're such a bad God. <laughs> After all this, they cried that out. And Moses calls that, that place, testing and rebellion, Massa and Meribah. This came after the plagues. This came after the Red Sea, manna from heaven, and water from a rock. And then it gets worse. In Numbers 14, uh, it, they get up to the edge of the promised land, and they're about to enter. They're about to be called to enter, and they can't, they don't do it because of fear. Only a couple 
uh, enter because of fear. They don't go in. And so God does not permit that generation to enter the rest, the Sabbath of the promised land. And Hebrews is saying, in a way, you are like these people, and I want you to identify with these people. You're in a wilderness. You too are in a wilderness, a pilgrim. You were in slavery. You were in slavery. You're enslaved to sin. And through the gospel of Jesus, you have been brought out of the power of sin. It, It still obviously has some power over us, but you're forgiven of your sin. You're no longer slaves to sin, according to Romans. You are now out of slavery, but you're not quite home, right? Home is the promised land. Home is the kingdom of God. Home is uh, to come. We're waiting. Out of slavery, in this world, in this place, in this life, even if your life is great, it's kind of like a wilderness. And sometimes it feels like you don't have what you need to survive, And you can be very tempted to get bitter and angry and rebel against God. Despite how much glory and goodness he may maybe has shown you in his generosity to you and faithfulness over the years. This is the story of every Christian. You're in the wilderness. You may not realize it. Maybe the younger you are, the less likely you are to identify with the wilderness. But the more you've lived life, the more seasons of life you've lived through, you're like, Yeah, this place can be a wilderness where it feels like I don't have what I need, certainly not what I want, and even the best of things in life can leave me feeling like it's not enough. And so we're waiting. And Hebrews says, do not get hard-hearted. You're in the wilderness. You may even really have a really good life. The best of lives, good friends, family, plenty of money, maybe even a great dog, you know? I have all these things. I even have a great dog. I mean, uh, the current dog we have, we've had a lot of dogs. She's one of the best dogs I've ever, I've ever met. I just, I just love her so much. But if you notice that none of these things in life, the best of things, completely fill you. None of it. You want to get married, you get married. And, and even if you have the best of marriages, there's a sense in which you're saying, I'm longing for more, though. I still, have, I still haven't found the secret. I'm still longing for more. If I want to have kids, you have kids. And still, there's a sense in which you're saying, it's not the ultimate fulfillment. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's great. And there's always this longing for more. And if we look to these things, you've found the more you've walked in life and with God, you'll see it's not the ultimate. Nothing in this life. And, and in that moment, we can become confused and we can become angry and we can become bitter and say, why isn't this paying off? Why, is none, why do none of these people and none of these things completely fill me? And if we're not careful, we wind up being like this generation that says, is the Lord among us or not? Where is he? The the Israelites have experienced miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet they become hard-hearted against God, saying, where is he? And I guarantee you, you haven't seen miracles like they saw, but I I bet if you took a journal and spent the day reflecting on God's faithfulness to you over many, many decades, or even a few, you're able to look back and say, God has been faithful. He has been with me. 
So what about you? Because in a minute, we're going to receive a great warning from this book. A great warning. How is it with your heart? Do you think that God has left you and stranded you and left you to, to die of thirst? It's okay. Be honest if that's how you're feeling. Like, it, where's God? It feels as if he's completely abandoned me. Let's admit this life is difficult, but do you see that God is with you or has he stranded you to die in the wilderness of thirst? So if this world is like a wilderness where you can't fully experience fulfillment in your life, we're tempted to become hard-hearted and Hebrews is calling out to us, don't do it. Don't be like that generation. If you're like, like them and, and feeling like uh, this, you're, you're tempted to be bitter and to say, this life is a scam, man. I don't get it. And Hebrews is calling out to us from thousands of years ago and said, don't, don't do it. Don't be like that generation. Don't be bitter. Don't be angry. You're tempted to become cynical, to fall into despair. Don't do it. The truth is, you're in a place of waiting. You are. In this life is a wilderness. We're in the already and the not yet. We've come out of the slavery, but we're in the, we're in the wilderness. We're not yet in the promised land, the already and the not yet. We have God in part uh, waiting for the fullness to come. Uh, we are citizens and saints, but we're still sinners, are we not? Uh, life often feels like pilgrim's regress instead of pilgrim's progress. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Hebrews 3.12 says this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any uh, among you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's the warning. Uh, the Bible in Hebrews, especially in the New Testament, is uh, on a, one of the repeats or themes of Hebrews is do not fall away from this great salvation that we've been given. Now, the theological tradition that we're in says that uh, a true believer cannot fall away, uh, that God, they will persevere to the end, or rather that God will preserve them to the end in faith and, and bring them safely home. And I believe that, and I believe there is lots of, Lots of information from the Apostle Paul to give us confidence that that's true. And so today, though, we can debate philosophically or theologically whether that's true or not. Or when we see somebody fall, were they actually a believer or not? And, and like I said, that's fine. But the, what I want us to do today is to not do that. Instead, I think we would be very wise to listen and have ears to hear what Hebrews is saying and saying, take heed, don't fall away. Mary Healy, the great scholar, biblical scholar, wrote this. The deceit of sin, and she wrote it about this passage, it alludes to the fall. When, when he says, don't have a heart that is, uh, is, is uh, full of deceit of sin, it's alluding to the original fall between Adam and Eve. When Satan deceived Eve into disobeying God through illusory promises of knowledge and immortality. That was bound up in what Satan was tempting them with. She says, the same psychology of sin prevails in every generation. Satan deludes us into thinking that God is the adversary of our happiness, that God is the adversary of our happiness. And so we grasp happiness on our own terms. 
What Professor Healy is saying is every generation of people, and, real, and that's all of history, but also every generation that's represented in this room, every season of life comes with its unique challenge. When you're young, there are some very unique challenges, especially today. You are extremely challenged to remain faithful and believe in the gospel and, and walk in faith. But you're not the only ones. Every generation has a unique challenge to believe that God is actually for your joy and your happiness and to not believe Satan's lie that God is the one opposed to what is good, opposed to what is your joy, opposed to what is your happiness and completeness and fullness. This is, this is the, the lie that has been on repeat. It's been on shuffle, repeat, over and over and over that the enemy uses. It was the original sin. Did God really say to you that because he's lying? He's holding out on you. God hates a party. And the evil one says, I love to party. <laughs> and that makes sense to us. And we believe it. We believe it. God is hold, holding out on my joy and my happiness. God doesn't know how to throw a party. I, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to take life. I'm going to grasp it by my own definition. And it's a lie. Uh, Becky and I, as you know, over the last few years have entered into the, the season of life. This is one of the seasons of life of being empty nesters. And that is, that is just a horrible phrase. Is that not the worst? We're empty. We have nothing to offer in life anymore. And we live in a nest and it's empty. There's no birds or eggs. We're all dried up. Everything's horrible. Like, oh, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. And a lot of people experience a crisis in this moment. A lot of people do. And start to believe that God is against their happiness in that moment. When their kids move away. And other people believe that God is against their happiness until their kids move away. But like some of us, the opposite. So when our boys launched and it was only Becky and me in the home, I wrestled with God a lot. I'll be honest. I really did. And I, I had always wanted to get married and have kids and the calling has felt so central to my life that when the boys were no longer in our home, it, it sort of felt like, well, well now what? It's kind of like I had a vision for life that I would uh, meet a girl, uh, get married, have kids. I, I knew I wanted to be in ministry. I knew I wanted to plant a church. I did all those things. We had kids and they left. And it's kind of like, well, now what? And I know that doesn't make sense. I have fruitful, a fruitful job, great relationships, a great church, a lot of people in my life. But I'm just telling you the truth. That's what it felt like. In a way, it felt like, I got scammed, like the, the meaning of life is now done, that this chapter's closed. And what God has shown me, and it's taken a couple years to get, get to this point, is that first of all, this is his design for life. Uh, it is my calling and vocation to be a husband and father, but it's God's creational design for children to grow up and leave the home and to start their own families and to move out, to be launched into the world. And the other thing I, I've learned that God has shown me in that is to not believe this lie because we are not empty. We have Jesus. We may not be full like we will be in the kingdom of God, but we're not empty for goodness sakes. We have Christ. We have profound friendships. We have the church. We have one another. Becky and I are not empty. And our home is certainly not. It's filled with joy. It's filled with goodness. We have the Lord. We have one another. And so whatever, 
whatever season of life you're in right now, don't believe the lie that God is against your happiness and your joy. He's not, and he's not left you either. The second thing I want us to see is this. It's the pilgrim's power. You're on a spiritual journey, and he's saying, hey, I want you to identify with this generation, but you have something that this generation did not have, which is this. You are now sharing uh, in the life of Christ. You have something. You are participating in, in the fact that you share You have an inheritance and a share with Christ himself. And the first thing I want us to see is this, the pilgrim's power. How do we make it through this wilderness without falling away, which we've been warned not to do? And the first thing he shares, there's two things, is daily encouragement from fellow pilgrims. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This word uh, exhort in our Bible is the Greek word for parakaleo. Now you're like, okay. Well, kaleo means called or called out. And para means like with. And so it means literally in the Greek for, for you to call someone to your side, to be with you, to call them literally right up against you. And uh, there's lots of ways in the English you could translate this. Uh, our best attempts are uh, counsel, comfort, encourage, admonish, and beseech. And he's calling us, look, as long as you can call it today, like, hey, what day is it? It's it's, you know, what day is it, actually? I don't know. 22nd. 22nd. But it's today, right? Becky and I go to Newport Beach with family every year. We go to this beach, and, and uh, near where we stay is this great seafood restaurant that we always have to go to and get clam chowder. And on the wall, it says, free fish tomorrow. Right? You, you catch that? Free fish tomorrow. So it's, it's always tomorrow. Every day is always tomorrow. So there's never any free fish. Well, it's always today. And what Hebrews is telling us, if you get up in the morning, it's today. It's not tomorrow. And as long as it's today, you should be parakaleoing one another. You should be calling each other to your side to encourage one another to not give up. Now, can you imagine if Israel, instead of like in the, in the wilderness and in, in the wandering and the the frustration of not having your basic necessities meet, if you could have had some parakaleoing going on, how much better that would have been except grumbling. Moses was really the only one, and and maybe his brother Aaron, that didn't do that. And and, and they're saying, look, if they could have had a a, a group of people saying, hey, don't forget. (laughs) Yes, this is the wilderness, but do you remember all that stuff God has done? Uh, I, gosh, I kind of remember a couple, some plagues, Red Sea, uh, manna from heaven, like God's with us, you guys, don't give up. Hey, don't give up, encourage, 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 encourage. It's literally called today, let's encourage one another. Christians, this is our calling. To call one another to one another's side to say, hey, you're forgiven, don't give up. I know you're a sinner and you've probably fallen over and over. Your knees are bruised from all the unfaithfulness. But you're forgiven in Christ. Don't give up looking to Jesus. His mercy never ends. Hey, you're loved. 
You may not feel loved. You may not feel accepted in life, but I promise you, in Jesus, you're loved, man. Be encouraged. You're a people. You may not have an earthly father or mother, but I tell you what, you're adopted into the kingdom of God, and you're a people now. You're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're beloved. You have an inheritance. Maybe not in this pilgrimage, maybe not here in the wilderness, but I promise you in the promised land, you have an inheritance. You have a people. You're with hope. You're, you're not alone. You're a child of God. But parakaleoing, calling to one another's side, it can only happen when you're in relationship with other believers that are close enough for you to do so. Do you, do you get the picture he's painting? Every day... And this is a little bit of metaphor, but like every day you should be encouraging one another to press on and not give up, to not give up hope. And, and that only happens if you are actually connected to other believers in a real relationship where that can happen. And so check this, the church cannot just be an event that you attend. Instead, it has to be the people that you are a part of, the people of God that you are a member of. And so we're at an event right now. I'm on a stage at an event. There's music, we're doing this. But, and, and that's a church service, and we are called to that. We're not being wrong by doing this, but the, that's not the church. You're the church. Better yet, we are the church. And one of the best ways to not fall away is to literally be the church and be so united to other brothers and sisters that they're able to encourage you. Don't give up. Of course you're going to feel this way because you're in the wilderness. But don't give up. Church can't be an event you just, that you just attend from time to time. Church can't be a YouTube channel that you watch. And I'm not speaking to the shut-ins. I'm not speaking to elderly folks that can't get out of the house or, or some other diseased person that can't get out. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking for able-bodied folks since post-COVID. A lot, for a lot of people, the church has just become a YouTube channel. Oftentimes, not just one, like several. Like on Sunday, I'm going to just camp out on my couch, watch my favorite celebrity pastor, maybe another one as well. It's great. I don't even have to get out of my jammies. We can just drink coffee and eat donuts or whatever you do. And then, and then we got a little good word going. But Hebrews would warn you that may not be enough for you to fall away, to keep you from falling away. Because you can't paracoleto one another over the YouTube channel. As great as that content may be, uh, that's not enough. That's not being the church. You need to be in a church and you need to be the church, which is the people of God. I hear a lot of people say, well, church, church for me is like on a hike in nature. Awesome, but that's not enough. That won't keep you from falling away. Experiencing God in nature, even in the Grand Canyon or some glorious place in Arizona, is not enough uh, for you, you need to be the people of God with the people of God. Amen? Uh, hey, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Of course you're going to experience God in nature, but that's not going to keep you from falling away. You need to be the people of God, calling one another out. And I don't mean in a confrontational way, encouraging one another, loving one another. Don't give up. I know you're sick. I know you're in trial. I know you're lonely. I know... You You've lost someone you love. Don't give up. Second way to not fall, and there's a million others, but I'm just going to talk about two today, is fixing your thoughts on Jesus. This is what Hebrews 3 talks about. In Hebrews 3.1, in the 
NIV version, not the ESV. Normally, the stuff you see on the screen is ESV. Um, we're going to look at the NIV right now. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Uh, in the ESV, it says, consider Jesus. Uh, there, it says, uh, you, consider Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostles. The, the problem, I, I don't like that interpretation or that uh, translation of that word in the Greek, because here's why. It's kind of like, hey, uh, you want some Jesus? You, would you like to consider some Jesus? Like, yeah, you know what? I, I don't. Thank you, though. I really appreciate it, you know? Uh, I'll take some maybe after dinner, but right now I'm, I'm good with Jesus. You don't consider Jesus, right? The actual, the actual word means fix your thoughts on Jesus. You know, and in Hebrews 12, we'll talk about fixing your eyes on Jesus. And it's similar. Fix your thoughts, he says, on, on Jesus. And this will help you from falling away. Guys, we live in a time when it's really hard to fix your thoughts on anything. You know, if you're a student, fix, fix your thoughts on your studies. Well, it's really hard. Uh, you're busy with school and sports and all this other stuff and not to mention social media and a million gazillion forms of entertainment that are coming your way all the time. Fix your thoughts on whatever and it's hard. But this matters incredibly. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. This land of wilderness we're living in is so challenging and if you don't fix your thoughts on Jesus you are much more likely to fall away. And I think it's more difficult than ever to fix your thoughts on anything, but especially Jesus. We're at a time in a culture where obviously everything's shifting, everything's changing, and one of the messages that we're getting uh, through social media is this, fix your thoughts on yourself. No one matters in the whole world more than you. Well, think about that. Do the math. <laughs> There's billions of people. You all matter, and you do. As creation, you're an image bearer, the living God. But if we all lived as if we're the center of the universe, it's not going to work out really well, right? I mean, there's a, big, there's a lot of people here on planet Earth. Fix yourself, your, your thoughts on you. Uh, fix your thoughts on your feelings is another message we're getting constantly. Fix your thoughts on your anger, your bitterness, your lust, whatever it is. Fix your thoughts on your inward. Fix your thoughts this is a huge one in our culture. On your own personal individualistic identity, whatever that may be, however you define that as. Fix all your attention there. Fix all of your thoughts there. Fix your thought on your bitterness. Fix your thoughts on all the lustful images that are coming our way day after day after day after day. Fix your, off, your thoughts on all kinds of other good things like sports and this and that and drama and school and all these. There's a million things coming at us. And, and Hebrews is calling out from thousands of years ago with wisdom saying, don't fall away. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And, and I want to offer this, this call to us to be careful, to be mindful of how hard it is to fix our thoughts on Jesus in this day. Friends, we are addicted to our phones. We are addicted. And if you don't believe me, try stopping it. In fact, I'm asking you to. Kids, you'll probably totally ignore me and there's no way you'll do it. <laughs> but try, try setting this down and see how hard it is. See how many times if you're a guy, you reach in your, your 
your pocket to get your phone. It is constant. It's constant. Imagine if we turned off social media for a month or even a week in order not to just stop that, but to fix your mind on something else. So you're not constantly distracted. A friend of mine in the first service who's a professor of social media said, if you will just turn off notifications for seven days, you'll have a profound uh, change of relationship with your phone. If you have notifications on for all of your social media, you are being pinged every 30 seconds, like something new on YouTube, something new on YouTube. Oh, somebody commented on your post on Instagram. Somebody really liked it. Somebody hates it. Somebody thinks you're horrible on Twitter, X, or whatever. You know, it's all this stuff. It's just over and over and over and over. How can you fix your thoughts on anything? And it actually matters, you guys, because people are following away like crazy right now. And you can say, well, you know, can a real believer fall away? Let's not argue about that. We're seeing people that I know and love who like profess Christ not that long ago that now don't follow God. And my guess is we all have someone close to us who's fallen away. And we scratch our heads and we wonder why. And it's hurtful. It's sad. And from a human perspective, there's lots of reasons, okay? Tons. And from a human perspective, I think the number one reason uh, is hypocrisy in the church and abusive leadership in the church. And I don't, I don't want to diminish that for a second. I don't want to make excuse for it. I don't want to say it's right in any way whatsoever. It's horrible and it's evil. But, but Jesus hates that more than you do. And if you fall away and lose Jesus because of some bad people and bad actors you've lost the meaning of the universe. Don't fall away from the living God for idols just because of the evil of others. Jesus hates that more than you do. He hates hypocrisy. He hates abuse of all kinds, and especially in the church. And and those pastors and shepherds uh, of people who may be wolves, they will have to answer for that before a holy God. But they're not Jesus. Jesus is so good. Don't, don't lose Jesus because of the evil of others. It's difficult to wait in this life. We're waiting. We're in the wilderness. We're everything, including the best things in life, let us down and don't utterly fulfill. And it's frustrating. And, and maybe it's because these things were never meant to fulfill us in the first place. Maybe we were created for the promised land that we're not yet in. We're waiting. We're waiting. And God is calling us to live by faith right now in the waiting. And to encourage one another, to draw close to one another, to encourage one another. Do you doubt and sin still in this place of the wilderness? Yeah, of course we do. But fix your eyes on Jesus who defeated sin and death for his church on the cross and victoriously rose from the dead. When you fix our thoughts on how wonderful, merciful, kind, loving, righteous, holy, and good Jesus is, we are kept from falling. And he is our foundation upon which we stand. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in um, many different seasons of life, each of which has its own temptation. Would you help us fix our attention on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? 
Would you help us to focus there? Look to, to him with joy. Would you help us as the church to draw close enough to one another to encourage, to remind one another how good you are, especially for the faint of heart who are so discouraged. Would you help us to encourage? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.